everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Shannon Kathy with Terror Talk. Hello. Thank you for coming. Today on the show, we are doing the fifth installment of our Ted Bundy reboot. For those of you who might be new, the first four episodes uploaded on September 15th, September 29th, December 8th, and February 2nd, if you're looking to go back and start from the beginning. But those of you who have been with us on this ride, you know that we are taking material that we created in the first season of our show that I was not editing it. I, the sound is, and we said, um, and all a whole lot more than we do now. <laughs> and so I've gone back and edited, edited it and we are rebooting it and also adding new material to the discussion today. We will be going through the first chunk of his, of Ted Bundy's murders actually in the way we, that we explicated it originally, but also adding some information on uh, mirroring neurons and diathesis stress model, which we talked about last time, like, Hey, maybe we should add those in next time. And we are. So that's exciting. So exciting. <laughs> so we'll be doing that in the next chunk of the show. The other thing I wanted to mention actually to Kathy is that I, she's writing a series of articles on sociopathy called Sex, Lies, and Sociopaths. And we're adding that to our Patreon material. So that's happening every week for a few weeks. And then I have a feeling she has more ideas about different things she's going to write. And so do I. And also we're bumping up the website with more stuff. And I've also started doing a monthly film cheat sheet, which I just loaded, actually. I don't know if you saw that to Patreon for February. It's basically like a list of all the movies I feel like maybe checking out, like should check them out. I also want to add too, if there are topics that you hear either one of us talking about that you think, oh, I'd really, I really want to hear Shannon say more about that or Kathy say more about that. I'm more than happy to take topics that people want us to elaborate on and turn those into articles as well. So yeah. we love hearing from all of you. I mean, one of the reasons I came up with Sex, Lies, and the Sociopath is because sociopathy is a topic, psychopathy is a topic that I know a lot of our listeners are interested in. So please let us know. And if it's stuff we've talked about and you're like, I want to know more about that, or I'd like to see a few articles on that, let us know. Yeah, we're going to do that. Uh, not only for Patreon, but we will do some of those just for our website for everyone to enjoy. But we also wanted to start to beef up all the things that we give our patrons because they're so supportive. Mm -hmm. And not only do we do extra content for them, the Monday minicasts, every Monday we have a new minicast on a topic. We want. I wanted to do more. I just wanted to do more. And yeah. eventually we'll probably do, I think, live tapings, uh, video tapings of the podcast. We'll probably start out audio-wise, like in the Discord, doing it live in the Discord while we're recording, mm -hmm. and then maybe move to a little video at some point. But that all depends on sort of having more patrons as well, mm -hmm. because that all costs money. And so those are the kinds of things that you guys are supporting us to do. You're basically supporting us to give you more. <laughs> because it, all the money that we get goes back into the show because we do make a living. Mm -hmm. So we don't need this this product or the patron's money to live. And we're not trying to do this full time at the moment. On that note, we're going to get right to today. There is no so not prepared. waiting today. We are going to go right to the horror facts and then we'll take a very quick break. As you know, it's literally seconds before you hear us again and we'll get on with the Ted Bundy uh, shenanigans. But for now, we're going to do a little segment that we like to call 
She did the lackadaisical one today. You know. I like, mix it up. No big deal. Do you. No big deal. (laughs) She's underplaying. Then she's going to hit me with the hard ones. Number one. Okay. The average person walks past how many murderers in a lifetime? (laughs) I laugh, but it's not funny. Okay. (laughs) You found that very amusing. I know, because it's just so like how no one would ever know. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, if you really want I'm to get sure technical, there's a Google then you can go, okay, here's the population. This is how many percentages of people have murdered. Yep. This is how many people you walk And that's what I'll have to do. As you know, I have so to like. figure all that out. Uh-huh. We'll get to number two. I'll be right with Up you. Up to how many commercial pilots have admitted to falling asleep while flying a plane? I'm looking for a percentage, Shannon. <laughs> yes, Kathy. Aye, aye. Number three. What was the original film title for the film Alien? Look at her writing now. She's like, I know that one. Yeah, hey, I didn't say that. No, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Number four. Mm -hmm. In 1985, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Deux was the highest grossing movie. Which film that year? which horror film that year Uh, came in second. Okay. The year is 1985, (laughs) Shannon. Back to the Future does not qualify as a horror film. Oh, okay. Yes, ma'am. Number five. So strict today. (laughs) What does a spider do to its web when it's done with it? No, just... I'm not going to say. I was going to give you an answer. (laughs) Thank you very much. We're going to take a brief break after this introduction and get right into the Ted Bundy reboot. We will be right back. Hey there. Hi there. (laughs) We are talking about Ted Bundy. It's our fifth reboot of the material that we recorded a few years ago on Ted Bundy. Still real solid on the material, although I have gone back in and made it sound a little bit better. And I've edited out. I still don't know how you've done that. I've edited out some of our flubs as well, which, you know, we aired everything then, (laughs) which is fine. And I don't edit that much. I don't edit us that much now, except for when we screw up or... You know, the ums and ahs, I try to take most of those out because both Kathy and I both have some speech patterns that, you know, don't really need to be in the show all the time. I leave them in sometimes. But today on the show, this is the first section of the second episode we did originally. And it's where Kathy goes into Ted Bundy's murders. Not literally. No, she doesn't go into them. But she talks about them. And we end up talking, of course, about 
things as we do. So I think what we'll do is we'll just jump in, start replaying some of the stuff. And what ends up happening, if you haven't listened to these reboots before, is we play the material and then eventually Kathy gives me the high sign or I stop the recording and we stop down and we just kind of explicate whatever's happening in the conversation. So here we go. You ready, Kathy? I'm ready. All right, here we go. I'm going to take all of you sort of through this crazy trajectory of his killings today. We had ended up um, in the last episode sort of talking about how he was led into this. Other than his very last victim, he murdered his, his sort of age profile was be- women between the ages of 18 and 25. If you think about women between the ages of 18 and 25, oftentimes they're going out to places, they're in clubs, they're at the beach, they're in areas where there are a lot of them. It's kind of easy picking. (laughs) It's a very easy picking, yeah. Yeah. What they believe, what the authorities believe and the people who have researched this believe, that his first murders actually took place on July 14th, 1974. Again, like like we were talking about in the first episode, he's such an unassuming person by the way he looks, by the way he presents. And I I don't think I mentioned this in the last episode because we weren't quite here yet but he would present as this injured person so he would oftentimes wear a sling on his arm or limp and he would go up to a potential victim and say hey can you can you help me with something I I need a little bit of help opening my car door or whatnot so you know the these women would be oh my gosh yeah no problem I'll help you the next thing you know he's shoved him in the car and they're gone pretty typical right Mm -hmm. yeah I think this first set of murders that we're going to talk about what I think is so remarkable. And I don't know, and maybe you can also comment on the Shannon. I don't know if this is his grandiosity Mm. or he is just really that dumb, (laughs) but he would do things in the middle of the day where he could be identified. So his first murders actually happened in the middle of the day in front of hundreds of people, not the murder per se, but the abduction. Well, the abduction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so what? So which one are we talking about? So we're going to start with, I think it's Lake Sammamish. I know that we revisit this and talk about like, what was his motive for doing something in, in the middle of the day? And maybe he's stupid. Maybe, you know, I don't know. He's grandiose. I, I also, you know, looking back and reflecting on this now too, is he loved that risk. I was going to say that's the, that's the how I can get away with it during the day. I mean, he's <laughs> doing something in the middle of the day. You're pretty badass if you're getting away with that. And there's, I'm sure there's a real heightened level of arousal. We know with sociopaths and psychopaths, they need extreme stuff to feel much. Right. And I don't this know. would give it to him. This would give him the extra zhuzh. This would. Yeah. And yeah, and he did. Get away with it. Yeah. For a really long time. All right. More? Yeah. Okay. So what was really unique about this first murders, these first murders, is that he could be, you know, there were witnesses to being able to identify what he looked like. Many people, when they were interviewed after, saw the victims leaving 
with with a man who had his arm in a sling mm-hmm. and had approached her and asked for help. So it'd be no different if, let's say, Shannon, you and I were at the beach yep. and we're sitting on a towel and we remember a guy coming over to someone sitting next to us. Hey, can you help me with this? Right. You're going to sort of remember what that person looked like. Cause it's sort of an odd thing to see at a beach, first of right. all. Right. Janice Ott was to, believed to be his first victim. He had approached her, asked for help. Witnesses said she was never seen again. But here's where he's so cocky. He comes back hours later and approaches another woman Hmm. by the name of Denise Nasland. So she was the the second victim in the same day, also never seen again. And so before his execution, he admitted to murdering both of them that day. So we don't, we don't know, like, I don't know if he went into it, but we don't know sort of what happened. Like he just took one, one place and tied her up or something and then came back and got another or killed her and then mm-hmm. needed more. He, yeah, we don't, I don't think they really know because they found, um, I, I believe they found their bodies later okay. decomposed and I'll get into this later, but he, he was really obsessed with the possession of his victims. Mm-hmm. So uh, oftentimes he would kill them in the car and he would have the body. He would then place it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And he was also known to go back days, weeks later, put makeup on the victim. I mean, he was just very, I think he was a necrophiliac. So he, you know, he would have sex with them after they were dead. So he was just really obsessed with the possession of them. So God only knows what he did to them and where he put them at that time. But right. he it's- collect, it was like a collection for him. Right. As we often see, the serial killers will, will leave, have a trophy, right? They'll keep, right. They'll keep trophies. And it sounds to me like his trophies, what you're saying is his trophies were the bodies. Absolutely. Until um, they got, until they were decomposed and he would do something different with them, I assume. But. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So, you know, and, and then it just, the eeriness of him doing this in the middle of the day and is really really creepy yeah Yeah, so so you know he he does these things in broad daylight he gets away with it um the only thing they did know some of the witnesses knew is his name was ted and they knew that he drove a volkswagen bug so So they knew knew him kind of they because i believe he introduced himself to these women Mm. you know and then that he kept his car and in broad daylight so this was this was the first time law enforcement actually had a, a forensic sketch because remember I think I had spoken in the last episode that there were already women that who were missing and there was some suspicion around whatever was going on. So this is the first time they're like, okay, we may actually have a suspect mm-hmm. or a face, but this was the first case where they actually just had like real substantial evidence. So anyway, the sketch is made, they've interviewed a bunch of people and then his sketch would remain with the King County police department all the way until his execution in 1989. Wow. So, yeah, it was pretty remarkable. So the first real lead to his case was a college professor, and we were talking about the college professors last episode too, who called the police and stated that there was a quote-unquote weird student named Ted in his class <laughs> who drove a Volkswagen. <laughs> so Ted didn't do a very good job at, at, at hiding himself at all. Oh, I don't think he was trying to. Exactly. Being him. (laughs) Yeah. He was being him. He was above the law. And in some ways, I think it was like a big fuck you, you know? (laughs) So he, uh, the woman, we talked about this woman, Elizabeth, he was dating in the last episode briefly, and and they were together for a while. She was dating Ted at the time of these murders, and she was actually approached with the composite sketch. Mm -hmm. And she reported that the sketch looked just like him. Okay. She confirmed that he drove a Volkswagen and she did not want to believe, obviously, that 
this could be her Ted. Mm-hmm. Um, but so now the police are like, this has to be him. So again, remember when he got to college, he was very different than he was in high school. He was considered so outwardly normal. He was still not a top suspect. He was a suspect, but they still weren't really. Well, they didn't have anything really to no. do or, you know, like all they had was Ted and some random guy. They had no evidence to or no right. bodies, right? So That's right. So none of the bodies were recovered until later on in the year. This is where the bodies of the two women, their remains were found. It was, a, it was actually a couple months, I think, after he had murdered them. It was unconfirmed that it was their bodies, but they believe it was their bodies. And they had been strategically placed. And to this day, they don't know the identification of these, of these victims, but they assume it was these two women. Because this was before, again, before DNA and all that stuff. Were they found in the lake or is that where their bodies were? I don't think they were found in the lake. I think they were found in like the woods or something. Because oh, okay. the, in Washington, you know, there's so many trees. I think he took them away and dumped them somewhere further away from the beach and then came back. Okay, yeah, in the in the mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he strategically placed them, and they described the bodies as being very disturbed and, and just, mm-hmm. you know, annihilated. And so anyway, that was the beginning of that. So he would, he would also fuck with the police, and he would contaminate the crime scene to drive law enforcement crazy. So he would continue, like I was saying earlier, this fantasy after death. But he also knew that he couldn't control himself. So he would have to move on before he gave himself up. Like he would play with the body for so long and then he'd be like, I I know if if I don't go kill someone else, I'm really going to sell myself out. He'd keep the remains. He'd go back to the crime scene. He would make up on the victims. He would have sex with the the dead bodies. And I think you and I both know that a lot of this was about power and control and possession. And like you were saying earlier, just the, the collection of and victims compu- and, and compulsion, right? And I mean, compulsion. Compulsion. It's it's not that. I think we always have to be mindful that you know it's not somebody with this mental issue isn't always mindfully going through things rationally. There's a compulsion here that he's executing. Yeah, and it sounds like he was he was somewhat aware of that, and that if he didn't check himself, he would be caught. He yeah. played right on the line. You know, he knew he fucked with them enough. And I think he he was turned on by that. But he also knew when he had to stop. So it was like playing with fire. Yeah, he did. He wanted to keep doing it. And so he needed to protect himself. And he was very bright. So, yeah, yeah. A- absolutely. So following this whole Washington thing, women now start women began missing in Utah. Mm-hmm. So one was actually the daughter of a deputy. Going back to what I was saying at the beaches, he would oftentimes use the sympathy mode by putting his arm in a sling, or sometimes he would even wear a police officer's badge to lure them into his car. Two of his victims were strangled with nylon stockings. He kept a lot of stuff in his car. He had nylon stockings. He had all these different gadgets in his car. And I'll talk about that when he first gets pulled over. But he would keep that stuff in the backseat of his car. And back in the 60s and 70s, people were not looking at and this is more 70s, 80s, but not looking at, oh, this is an unmarked car. I don't have to respond to this. Right. People just were more innocent, I think, at that time and would believe believe him. And he, like we've talked about, he's so unassuming and approachable that people are like, oh, he's, he needs help or he's a nice man or whatever they were thinking. So Carol Duranch is his next victim, November 8th, 1974. He picks her up, states he's a police officer. Uh, he goes down the street, stops the car and starts assaulting her. 
the thing with Carol Durant is she was actually able to get away. And she ran and she was picked up by an older couple in their car who yeah. takes, takes her to the police station and describes, starts to describe him to the police. Bundy's pissed off now because she got away. Well, yeah. Right? Yep. So he then drives to a local high school where they're having a play and he murders a 17-year-old student that night. Mm-hmm. So, again, it just sort of displays this, I'm not going home without getting what I want. And this little bitch got away, so I'm going to go kill somebody else. Right. And that speaks to the compulsion. Like he can't, it's like he has to execute the plan. Exactly. (laughs) Or he he feels like he fails. So by 1975, 19 women are missing. There's over a thousand potential suspects at this time. On August 16th, 1975 in Utah, Granger, Utah, a highway patrol officer pulls over the Volkswagen bug and Ted identifies himself. He's like, yeah, I'm Ted Bundy. (laughs) Right. It's just again, like he's just he's a cocky fuck. They find in his vehicle electrical cords, ski masks, ice picks, rope, all this stuff. Right. His murder kit. The investigators realize that he now resembles the man who Carol DeRanche had identified as well as the profile in other disappearances of women at that time. All of the murders show blunt trauma, uh, assault, mutilation. So he's leaving a lot of evidence behind. So again, is this arrogance? Is this compulsivity? I don't know. What do you think, Shannon? I mean, he's leaving yeah, all this I, stuff behind. If it's, I, I don't know, because I don't know sort of what the, what the crime scenes look like, obviously. Sometimes people leave things behind because they're making their mark, right? They leave specific mm-hmm. things behind. They leave messages behind because they ultimately know it's all leading to them being caught and then being able to take credit for the killings, right? It's always, always leading to that. They know eventually they'll get caught and be able to tell their story and be famous. Like a notoriety in a way. Right. And so if you don't, you're, you're leading clues to yourself, basically. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's what he was doing, but maybe. And then also just, I don't know if there was a certain amount of passion in his killings. So he was a little bit sloppy or he was very fastidious and, it doesn't sound like he hid a lot. You know how sometimes serial killers, we just, they just really, we don't know anything about them for years and years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't seem like that was the type of guy he was. It seems like he was, from what you're saying, the type of killer who was compulsive and needing to execute on this fantasy of his and that he didn't quite do everything in a way to protect himself Mm -hmm. really i don't know i mean i I agree i think that there's an addictive quality to it and one of his his prison psychologists who i'll talk about in a moment here literally described him as being addicted to killing people and so i think like like any addict they're going to be sloppy at times because it really just is about that feeling that rush that they need to have despite the consequence potential consequence yeah i don't i don't i don't get the sense from What'd you say? The insatiability. I mean, they're insatiable, right? And so when we're insatiable about something, we're, you know, we're going to mess up because we're, if we want something bad enough, we're going to make mistakes along the way. And as arrogant as he was and grandiose as he was, he didn't think he'd get caught. No. I mean, he assumed he wouldn't. Right. And they played, like I said, he played on that line just enough that it was risky enough to keep his interest, Mm -hmm. but knew how to 
organize it enough that he could keep going. Well, and they're always pushing boundaries. Always. He's just pushing the boundary of what he can get away with. Like, but it's like a, like a teenager's brain, you yeah. know, just pushing the boundaries of what they can get away with. And if they can get away with it, they'll keep doing it. All right. We, we have only about a minute or so left of this. So let's finish it out. And yeah. then we'll talk about some of the topics that we, we obviously decided not to stop down in the middle because you're really just taking us through the killing. So right. we'll talk about some topics after uh, another minute or so when we wrap this section up. So here we go. So far from what you've told us about that he had a sense of consequence or that he was thinking in any way about protecting himself no he Mm -mm. was i think it just seems like he's very much acting on straight impulse impulse yeah for sure So. so at this point all his family and friends are in disbelief you know how can someone in law school be a serial killer his mother described him as this normal boy. And again, there's no DNA database or surveillance at this time. So Carol DeRanche was actually the smoking gun. If it would not have been for her getting away, right. he may never have been caught. So in 1976, he's tried and found guilty on both accounts of kidnapping and assault. And he's sentenced to serve up to 15 years in state prison, despite the suspicion that he's connected to 19 dead women relatively small sentence. I guess they only had proof enough for, I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know why the sentence was so small. Do we know? Well, I think that, you know, we're, we're going to continue this conversation, but I think that in this next section, we're going to talk a little bit about who he was and how he presented and maybe why he was able to get such lighter sentences. So there you go. That was the first chunk of the second episode that we did. So a couple things came up. I had mentioned a couple times in that section how he had played off people's empathy. Absolutely. So he had, uh, he knew how to manipulate, make himself vulnerable, which especially at that time, women see a woman sees a man who's vulnerable. He needs help. He seems very sweet. Oh, can you please open the door for me? He played off empathy. Mm -hmm. I had talked a little bit about, empathy in the sociopath and the psychopath in the last episode of this we had started to touch on the deficits or the incapacity for empathy or remorse when we're dealing with someone who's more sociopathological we know with psychopaths there are so we've we've been able to prove well proves a definitive word there are a lot of theories about the mechanics of the brain being a little bit different. They've dug deeper into the idea. They dug deeper. We know <laughs> yeah. that sociopaths, if we're going to really split hairs here, and I do think that he's a sociopath, he definitely has the antisocial personality piece, but he also has the narcissism. And I think his was certainly more nurture than nature. Although we do know that he has a history of a very, you know, violent family, violent father. So there could be, maybe he is a psychopath. I don't know, but really that's irrelevant for what I'm about to state here because in our brains when we're born and Shannon knows a lot of this too, just coming from a psychodynamic perspective and knowing the importance of mirroring when a, when a mother or father or a parent or a caregiver or guardian holds that child for, you know, in the first couple months of life all the way up through the first couple of years of life, that child's looking at the parent for a level of mirroring emotions and security and just learning how to identify, you know, what they're feeling that eventually over time, that caregiver 
becomes a separate person to that child. But at the beginning, it's like one, right? It's that like right. very early. So what happens with a child who doesn't get that appropriate mirroring, they're left to, in a state of uh, abandonment in a, in a sense, or fear, depending on what the the way that the parent either doesn't respond or doesn't respond in a way that's healthy for the child. And in our minds, we have something in our brains, excuse me, we have something called mirror, mirror neurons. Okay. So in a healthy brain, the mirror neurons activate both when we perceive someone else doing an action and when we do that same action ourselves. So it helps us relate to other people. It helps mm-hmm. us understand how someone might be feeling in that moment. It helps us expand or use like a meta, you know, cognition in a sense that we can extrapolate and go, this, this is, this is likely what this person is conveying in this conversation. And not only that, mirroring neuron, n- neurons are also related to empathy but not mutually exclusive. So let me describe this further. So the the mirroring neurons need to be there. They need to be working. But then empathy is something that's also innate and has to be taught and learned because we're essentially born to survive. It's really been through having to coexist and keep our species alive that empathy has become a really important thing. So when we have the mirror neurons that are working effectively and we have the empathy that's working effectively, we have a healthy-ish person. Mm-hmm. But when that's when it's not working, the mirror neurons are not allowing that person to extrapolate or imagine necessarily and care about what that other person might be feeling. So with psychopaths and sociopaths, they have what's called cognitive empathy And that's really only from learning what other people might feel in a certain situation. Makes them great mimics. Makes them amazing mimics, but they don't necessarily care about it. They lack the affect. They lack the care. So in those moments when he was luring these women, he was playing on that cognitive empathy, knowing if I do this, this, and this, it's going to make them feel a certain way. And now I've got them. But then he lacks that remorse or that ability to really care about hurting them. And that's what makes them so flipping powerful. Absolutely. And I would say that one of the things, one of the reasons why I think some people fall prey to this in situations when they are what you would know of them is a human being that would not you would not guess would be susceptible to this kind of behavior is because what I think is is that if you are a victim of trauma or you are in a trauma-based mindset at that time or you had some kind of failing in your caregiving. It doesn't have to be an, a total or all-encompassing right. failure. It could be just from your father or just from your mother or whatever it is. In the moments when you are sitting with a sociopath, one of the things that happens is that you lack the ability to affectively, affectively attune. So we can all find ourselves in moments where we are not emotionally attuned to another human being. Mm-hmm. Plus, that would be exhausting. So we're yes. not always emotionally <laughs> It's attuned. like when you get people who say, are you analyzing me right now? No, right. I'm not working. No, actually not thinking <laughs> about you at all at the moment. It's way too exhausting to be thinking that <laughs> way much. Way yeah. too exhausting. Yeah. However, when you meet someone new that you are attracted to, usually 
you spend some effort, a healthy individual spends some effort emotionally attuning to that person. However, if you're a trauma victim or you've had, it could be even just having a bad day or you had a bad dad or whatever it is, you might not understand that that mimicry is not founded in depth. And what I mean by that is that it fakes it pretty well. But honestly, if you are healthy and balanced and feeling good and worked through a lot of your trauma, you will feel as we do as therapists in the room with a sociopath, you won't be able to effectively attune to them and you will notice that. And so now I have met sociopaths in my life Mm -hmm. when I am not coming from a victim or a trauma-based mentality and have gone, oh, they're empty. And I can, I can, I can see it immediately. Whereas in my life in the past, when I have met sociopaths and thought they were regular people, I was not in a place where I could attune. Yeah. And you get the, you get this badge after you've been through something like that, that your gauge is then on. But yeah, but before you know what that is, or before you've experienced or done your work, it's quite easy to go, oh, I really want to care for this person or I want, yeah. The mimicry is very effective. Yeah. But what you don't realize is that you're not, you're not attuning to them. You, you, you might think, eh, something's a bit off, mm-hmm. but you know, they've been through a lot. We make a lot of excuses yeah. for people, right? Especially what you're talking about, how sometimes women can err on the side of caregiving. Mm-hmm. And savior yep. and saving. You, you've talked. Saved. You talked a bunch about like women uh, saving, trying to um, nurture and save and rescue. And uh, if you're in that mindset, then you're going to just say like, "Oh, well, they've been through a lot." Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's they're a little off, but you know, he's a little quirky. You're going to make all kinds of excuses like that, like like everybody says about every serial killer in the world on the TV interview. Oh, mm-hmm. well, he was a nice boy, and I mean, he was or or he was always a little bit of a loner. So yeah. he was a little bit off. Yeah. You know, well, why didn't you listen to that? That's why. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Ah, uh, yes. Well, that's another chunk. Yeah. Another chunk of the reboot. We'll keep going through it. Thank you very much for uh, for adding something to that. And I look forward to also reading the series on uh, Patreon, Sex, Lies, and the Sociopath that you're doing. Uh, what I have is, I believe, the first article on that that you wrote went up last friday i'm kind of i'm posting them on fridays on our patreon so if if y'all are interested in coming along and getting more content from us that's one of the things that's on our patreon doesn't cost very much just go to patreon.com and terror talk podcast and join us we're we're a friendly bunch yeah we're all right yeah Okay, thanks so much. We'll be right back. We're going to do our usual horror books, horror watches, and the answers to uh, Kathy's horror facts with Kath. Ooh. Ooh, which I will get none of them right. Okay, we'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, we are back. Let's talk books and movies, shall we? We shall. Okay. So we both 
are, have been making our way through the second in the Black Winter series by Darcy Coates. And the second book is called Secrets in the Dark. And we're both about eh, around 200 pages in. So maybe like a third. I think it's about a third yeah. of the way. It's a pretty big book. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah. So let me, let me say we did the first book in this series for our book club. And we both really enjoyed it. Uh-huh. And so that's why we decided to read the second one. <laughs> yeah, I started reading her stuff during like the fall because she does really good ghost stories. So we picked this one for the the book club. Mm-hmm. And then you and I and Ice decided to mm-hmm. continue on. It's a four book series, at least so far. Yeah, so far so good. Like the first one was called Voices in the Snow. And that's the one we read for book club. And it was pretty good. But we all were very aware that there was a lot of setup. So... Uh, but we were okay with that because we knew that there was four books in the series so far. So, you know, when you have that and when you plan to do a multi-book series, there's usually several hundred pages where you're really setting up the characters and the premise because you got a long way to go. <laughs> so she did that. And then now we're on to book two. What are, how are you feeling about it? I remember the first time you spoke about the second Mm -hmm. book you started reading it before i did and you had gotten about 60 pages in and you were sort of like come on get leave the house you were Um, really impatient how do you feel okay they have left the house yeah 200 pages in they've left the house but i'm definitely liking it more than i did at the beginning and i'm a little bit further than you are Mm -hmm. so now we're starting to see i think the characters are the two main characters are getting a little bit more complicated and or complex Mm -hmm. because now when you've been with someone for a while and stress kicks in and you're no longer in the idealizing stage of this, whatever you call it between them. Yeah. um, At the heart of basically the heart of the story has a male and a female who are falling in love and stuff starts to happen. That's testing not only the loyalty is there, I don't think she's going to mess that up, but more so when someone's sanity starts to get impaired because of the ongoing stressors, ways things that are interpreted through conversation or through behavior, they're starting to argue a little bit more. The, the, the stakes are getting higher because they're not at Winterborn mm-hmm. and they're coming across things that now literally could be life or death and they can't run back in the house. Mm -hmm. So it's becoming a little bit more of that like survival Mm -hmm. horror that I wanted because now they're not in that safe space. I see. Yeah. And you're also starting to find out some things about Doran that are not necessarily bad, but they start to have conversations where she realized like, wow, you've known more than I thought. Yeah. These two main characters that are set up from the very beginning and it's a situation where Doran has this big mansion and she ends up being stranded there and then creatures come. I mean, that's the basic premise. And there's a whole lot going on. The whole first book takes place in this mansion. And then now we're in the second book and the first couple of hundred pages, we're in the mansion. 
and now we're out and about and there's reasons why we're out and about and, and all of that. But what I would say is I've enjoyed this book, I think, a lot more than you did because I the first 60 pages didn't drag for me like mm-hmm. you had you had said that. So I was kind of really expecting that when I was reading. Oh, good. And for me, it didn't yeah. for whatever reason, maybe because I already maybe I expected it. And so I it didn't drag. But I think I was also in two other books I was really crazy about. And that may have been part of it. Maybe too. it just yeah. paled in comparison. Yeah. Sure. I also think in these first 200 pages, it's been great. There's been lots of great horror. There's one scene where they are trying to do something having to do with a car and they're in peril. That's a great scene. And I was fucking scared. Yeah. And I don't get really tense when I'm reading very often (laughs) or even when I'm watching movies (laughs) because I have this. I just I'm disconnected from it, but I was affectively yeah. in that with them. You're like, get in, get in, get in, get and in. And it was in. like yeah. late mm-hmm. at night, and I was not supposed to still be up. And I'm like, I just have to get through this scene because I have to know what happens. I mean, I knew they weren't going to die because <laughs> mm-hmm. they're the two main characters of a four book series, but it was really tense, and I thought really well done. And there were three, four. Other times, even just within these 200 pages where they were in peril like that, because there are creatures in this story. And the way the creatures are described, the way uh, tense moments, there's this real, I feel like this book has a much better ebb and flow to action. Yes. Because there has been, we're only a third of the way through and there has been a ton of action. Now, of course, the chapters are written really short, Mm -hmm. which I like. So some chapters are literally just getting you, like there'll be two or three chapters that are going to get you to the next piece of action, which of course you have to have. It can't be Mm -hmm. all action. Mm -hmm. And build a relationship. Something's always been a miss about Doran, so it doesn't surprise me that eventually there's he's going to be more complex. He's been set up like that for sure. And I will let you know, I was just looking at Goodreads while we were chatting and each successive book has a better, even a better rating. So like people were like, okay, the first one, Oh, second one's a lot better. Oh, the third one's even better. Yeah. Oh, the fourth one's even better. So people have really built their love of it, it, I think. Well, I think it can even be like a series, right? Where like that first season, yeah. they're really building the characters up and they're building the atmosphere. And I wasn't, I know that some of the people that we read the first one with were like, not they wanted it to move a little bit faster i felt the first one for me the pace was just fine it was fine i mean i i didn't have as much of that issue but i was i guess a little bit impatient with it wanting it to move along i Mm -hmm. think some other people some people and maybe you were one of them kathy were having reactions to the fact that they were in a relationship so fast oh no i was i was saying that i ignored the relationship i was exactly more into the, yeah <laughs> a lot of people didn't really want yeah. to deal with the fact that they were trauma bonding and attracted to each other mm-hmm. and that piece of the story but i think that with a four book series and maybe more i don't know if she's writing more of these but like i feel like you have to take time to build that and then that's going to really pay off in the other books because you know, he's going to be fucked up or she is or something's going to happen. And because they have that bond of caring about each other, it's going to make it like way more complicated. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. Or I think we're both enjoying it. Yeah. So that's Mm -hmm. happening. I also just finished a book. Uh, I actually did the audio book of this one because, because of who it is. Uh, The book is called Nerd Do Well by Simon Pegg. Okay. 
And as you know, Shaun of the Dead is one of my very favorite horror movies. Mm-hmm. And so, as you also know, that's Simon Pegg. And he's done lots of really f- amazing movies. And he wrote a memoir. And so I got the audiobook because it's him reading it. Like, mm-hmm. hello. <laughs> so why wouldn't I do that? It's kind of fun because it's an interesting format. I just I just finished it. And it's a good book. And I would recommend it. Very so, cool. Simon, you know... Shaun of the Dead is a satire. Mm -hmm. So he originally pitched the book to be a full satire, like literally satirizing his life story. And then people were like, yeah, no, that's going to not really, (laughs) nobody's going to want to read that. So what he did was, is he, he makes a joke in the very beginning about, so I did it anyway, but he didn't actually, what it is is like, it'll, their chapters are really short and there'll be a satire chapter, which I'll tell you the audiobook is fun for because I wouldn't maybe like it as much if I was reading it, but because it's him reading it and he's very funny and he's right. a stand-up comedian yeah. that him doing the satire of his own situations is in talking about himself in the third person. And he often makes himself a hero and it's kind of very funny. So it'll be like every third, fourth, fifth chapter, he'll do a satire chapter. But then he'll do a bunch of chapters where he's telling you stories about his life. It's almost like um, like we had one of our, our Discord peeps, 452, say why World War Z was so much better as an audiobook because sometimes those voices and hearing that some things are made specifically for it's better to listen to it on that It format. just seems better. Like mm-hmm. really, I mean, although a lot of people, the reason why it was made into such a famous audiobook is because the World War Z book was so famous and so well-beloved. So, which... Kathy and I don't understand. No, we I have very that, unpopular. The trash. We have a very unpopular opinion about that. Kathy didn't even like re-gift the book. No. She literally threw it away. I was cleaning <gasps> out my car. It was in the back seat. I'm like, I'm not even going to take this to the book buyback because I don't want anyone to buy it. <laughs> That's how much. Because Kathy never has any strong feelings. No, about never anything. Just World War Z. <laughs> anyway, nerd do well. Simon Pegg. If you do Audible like I do give it a whirl it's quick it's fun it's funny and he's amazing and blah 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 so there you go yeah what'd you watch or read whatever uh, well you know let's start with the one that was just so bad oh and i was not that i was hoping for much but i like i wanted to know more about who she was in her younger you know when we're when we talk about serial killers we like to know about their childhood and things like that. Okay. So I watched Eileen Wuornos, American Boogie Woman. Oh God. Yeah. And it was all about, why would I, you know who that is, right? Yeah. It's, it's the from same Cobra people. Kai, <laughs> the chick from Cobra Kai. I, no, I'm yeah. saying it's the same filmmaker that did all those, uh, Ted Bundy, American Boogie Man oh, that yeah. I talked about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I just, I, it was an easy watch. It was, I mean, but it was an hour and 40 minutes, first mm-hmm. of all. It shouldn't have been that long. Mm-hmm. So based on Eileen Wuornos' early life, America's most notorious female serial killer who went on a killing spree in Florida in 1989 and 1990. What few people know is that back in 1976, a young and beautiful Eileen Wuornos arrived in Florida searching for a new life that would help her escape her tragic past. Married a wealthy yacht club. You're reading that like a grocery list. I know. Married a wealthy yacht club president and then had the chance to start again as part of Florida's high society, or did she? So here's the thing. Her backstory is actually quite interesting. Not in this film. No, they make horrible films. Yeah. I thought I warned you. <laughs> I, I I mean, you might have, but you rarely see stuff on female serial killers on TV, and, and I loved... Um, 
I, I love her case and her story. And I love. Maybe we should do a proper episode on her then. Yeah. Charlize Theron's depiction of her, of course, was amazing. So I'm like, yeah, I'll give it a watch and see if they do it, it justice at all. It ran worse than a Monday night movie. Yeah, no, they're really bad, those movies. They're really bad. Yes, yes. Okay, well, I didn't listen. <laughs> the Ted Bundy one I did on one of our Ted Bundy episodes. And then there was one before that. I think they've done like James, Jim, they did a Manson one. And they, I mean, the best part of this are the, are the, um, if I can read a few of the reviews, please do. Okay. This is the best. They're very entertaining. Usually the pseudo serious reclaiming of Wernos from the Oscar winning portrait that monster became is more garbage than trash. <laughs> this is a terrible movie that didn't need to be made. I just love that. It's that simple. It's just like, this is the end. As with other productions from Farron's, it's a complete waste of time, which is what you were saying. Yeah. And then the last one, Eileen Wornos, American Boogie Woman, wants to be another chapter in the monster story, but it's not clear who asked for this to be told. And besides that, it reads flimsier than a grocery store tabloid. <laughs> yeah. So this guy's done uh, Wornos, Ted Bundy, Nicole Brown Simpson. Do you remember me talking about the haunting of Sharon Tate and how offensive it I, was? I think I, I didn't realize it was the same guy. Yeah. Now I know. Okay. I'm just the saying. F word. Farron's leave it out of my mouth <laughs> because he's obviously got a contract to do a bunch of these things and he's, Good you know, making God. a living okay. and I don't, I don't, you Duly know, Duly noted. <laughs> Duly note. I was embarrassed for myself. I'm really, I you know, sometimes we have to learn these things on our own. Okay. <laughs> Good Lord. I watched The Woman in the House Across the Street. That was good. <laughs> From The Girl in the Window with Kristen Bell. She's funny in this. She did. And you watched the first few episodes with us, right? I'm almost done with the series. I okay, like yeah. We did it on the Discord. I mm -hmm. impromptu one Saturday morning just was like, let's watch a few of these episodes. And then a bunch of us just stuck around and watched all of them because they're quick and short and zippy and funny. And I love Kristen Bell anyway. So... I think it's worth a watch. <laughs> it's, it's obviously a satire. It's funny. Yeah. And it's a mix of genres. It's like dark comedy. I was expecting a straight satire across the board. And what they ended up doing, which I, I really enjoyed, was they made it into more of a dark comedy and a little bit of a thriller. They actually, they started out, obviously the name is a satire, and they start out that way. And there's certainly moments of satire, but definitely not a straight satire. It's eight episodes, but the eight episodes run less than four hours. So yeah, like we it's watched it all watch. as a group uh, on a lazy Saturday morning and it's an easy watch. And I really, really like Kristen Bell. So the cast was great. I, I thought everybody, I mean, I think I have one episode left, but um, I've liked it so far. And I think you'll find the end kind of pays off like <clears throat> they're going to do a second season. And, okay. and, you know, they're trying to make it have a little tiny bit more substance. So you keep watching for the plot as well. But it was fun. I'm not saying it's the best thing ever, but it's quick. It's funny. Kristen Bell is great. Michael Ely's in it. And I think it, it almost, um, it has that Santa Clarita diet feel to it. Yeah. Where, where it's you, like, like quick, quick potato and, chips. Yep. You just like, before you know it, it's over. Yeah. That was, a, you... that was another one I liked a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. It got canceled. 
I know. I know. I, I mean, how much further could you really have gone with well, it? Well, that was my thought is like, well, how much are we going to milk this? Could we just yeah. do the three seasons and get out? That's what I appreciate, not to digress too much about um, Fleabag. She knew to stop after two. She said. Such a great show, too. She, because everybody wanted that third season. She goes, you know what? We've peaked and well, I want to leave this series as a remarkable series. And it was the and best the thing she did. And it, well, and agreed. That's, I think that's a lot of. <laughs> Otherwise, I mean, again, that was another character. You could, you really can only go so far with that same theme. No, no, no. A lot of shows just drag it on and on and on. I mean, I mean, I could add a couple of things to this conversation that aren't horror. Like I blew through the latest season of afterlife with Ricky, Ricky Gervais is in that. Uh-huh. That's his show on um, grief. The he, he plays a character and it's a dramatic role, but he's fucking hilarious in it. Yeah, he's good. But you know, he's lost his wife, and so there's there's emotion to this, sure. and it's touching. Yeah, and I laugh out loud. He is so funny. He is such a jackass. Yeah. He plays that jackass role so well. And this is an interesting blend because it his ability to be a stone cold jackass and make that very very funny coupled with the fact that if you've lost someone that profoundly important to you and is so much a part of your identity that you're going to be the biggest jackass ever. So those two things mm-hmm. just really marry together really well and it's really good. I also watched and just like that, which is the reboot or newest season or whatever of Sex and the City, it's not actually a reboot. It's mm-hmm. like them now. Yeah, them now. And I really enjoyed that cool. because Sex and the City was a part of something that I watched religiously back in the day and have rewatched. And it was a lot of fun. And I love New York City and seeing the New York City part of it. But now they're in their 50s and and navigating a non-binary world so there's lots of themes with that there she's navigating uh carrie's navigating some very deep emotional stuff like uh, there's more to it than i thought there would be there's some really good like binge worthy shows i'll just mention one more and then i'll Mm -hmm. I'll mention my last movie uh a comedy I, i always look for really good sitcoms they're hard to find but there's one that just came out it just started it's only four or five uh, episodes in and I've binged it, which I don't binge a lot. It's called Pivoting and it's flipping hilarious and it's on Hulu. Eliza Coop, Jennifer Goodwin and Maggie Q, who's fucking fantastic in it. <laughs> and it's it's three women, all best friends uh, that all met in grade school. They're all in like their late 30s, early 40s. Maggie uh, Q, I believe she identifies as bisexual in the show. She's currently only dating women. Jennifer Goodwin is married to this like really that you never see him, but she's in a miserable marriage and is like averse to anything that could be risque, like masturbation. I don't want to talk about it. Right. She's super rigid. And then Eliza Coop is the OCD OCPD working mother whose dad does most of the child rearing. And she has like 50 nannies and is trying to be a better mom, but like really (laughs) loves her life with her, her girls. And they have uh, at the, the very first episode, you don't see this friend, but they're attending a funeral for the fourth friend Mm -hmm. in their group who passes away and it brings them back together and they have like one of the episodes is called d-day and it's about dylan mckay and they all like leave work to um (laughs) do a beverly hills 90210 binge worthy (laughs) but every episode is if you're in your late 30s early 40s and you grew up around that time or you're just you know 
a woman who's understands how important your girlfriends are probably pretty universal. This yeah. show is, I, I, do, I mean, I would say 35 plus you're going to really like this show. Yeah. It's hilarious. Cause it, it does. There are some elements of it that you have to be at a certain point in your life to really get because or, they yeah. make fun of the, the younger people who are already looking at them as old okay, <laughs> and gotcha, Maggie gotcha. Q's hilarious. But if you want something to make you laugh, this show's hysterical. You know, on that note, I'll add one that I haven't gotten all the way through yet. That um, it's called Somebody Somewhere. Okay, it's on HBO Max. It's a, a comedy series that stars uh, Bridget Everett, who's a comedian. Yeah. she's yeah. also executive producing it. I think there's only there was three episodes as of this recording, and you know, set in Kansas, and and that's where she's really from, I believe. And it's that it's that quirky, really wry humor that I just that just makes me so happy and she's hilarious and then she has you know uh, a gay best friend and she has this family she's got a drunk mom that keeps like lighting shit on fire and dad who's denying it so there's some like serious bits of that but it ends up and her sister's cray and (laughs) like she ends up going to this community center event that they call church (laughs) or bible study or something like that but actually it's really like karaoke and it's a it's actually a venue that they're like lying to the church of what they're using it for it's supposed oh choir practice is what they're supposed to be doing but what it is is a bunch of people from that have all sorts of all different uh races ethnicities gender identities uh there's a trans kind of host of ceremonies that's doing it and and it's actually like karaoke and they and like spoken word and all kinds of stuff and it's kind of where all of these people that feel probably like outsiders go to gather but then there's all these other things that you're you're following along and uh, it's pretty good it's that feel good but also funny yeah kind of thing yeah and yeah they're only like you know they're now they drop series one at a time every week like old mm-hmm. school they do that a lot on I the like streamers that. now i know that's how i think that's how pivoting is also it's full circle it's one at a time yeah. <laughs> it's come full circle you were gonna mention something oh uh, yeah and the, the other movie i'll mention it's actually from 2015 it's called the invitation mm-hmm. i enjoyed it it got mixed reviews but i actually thought this was kind of a Nothing deeply profound or different about it, but it was just like the right combination of actors and storyline and suspense and cult weirdness. Mm-hmm. Will and Eden were once a loving couple. After a tragedy took their son, Eden disappeared. Two years later, out of the blue, she returns with a new husband. And as a different person, eerily changed and eager to reunite with her ex and those she left behind. Over the course of a dinner party in the house that was once uh, his, uh, Will's house, the haunted Will is gripped by mounting evidence that Eden and her new friends have a mysterious and terrifying agenda. But can we trust Will's hold on reality or will he be the unwitting catalyst of the doom he senses? So you're sort of going along in the mind and the narrative of Will through this. Mm -hmm. So you are in his head and at times you're like, wow, am I going crazy or is this actually really happening? (laughs) But there, I like movies and maybe because I like, you know, Agatha Christie. Mm -hmm. I like the idea. I mean, it's a mystery thriller. It it is. And it's like a mystery dinner, you know, like what she does in a lot of, it's like people come together for this thing and it takes place in one night and the series of events are happening and all of this stuff starts to unfold and it gets weirder and weirder and weirder. And then a bloodbath ensues because it's, you know, a horror thriller. Because Um, (laughs) I I, I thought it was, I thought it was fun. Yeah. You enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Yeah. 
you know, sometimes when we walk into movies where we just don't know what they are, we can have that kind of pure experience. Yeah. And then afterward, we do that a lot, you and I. Mm-hmm. And then and then afterwards, you kind of, because we decide to talk about them and, and talk, bring other points of view to the show, et cetera, you go, oh, nobody liked it. Yeah. <laughs> and I liked it. You know? Well, at least and I didn't great. like American Boogie Woman. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm so grateful for that. I, just, I don't know how I missed that note would, from you. <laughs> I think I just saw Eileen Wernos and I'm like, oh, I'll watch it. Yeah, you just didn't think about it. Oh, God. Yeah, you just didn't remember or think about it. I mean, we don't put those connections. Sometimes, sometimes you just yeah. like, uh, sometimes it's like, oh, this looks interesting. And then it's like, oh, <laughs> no, no, no. All right. So now what are we doing? We are getting the answers. Oh, nice. Okay. To... The average person walks past how many murders in a lifetime? 32. 36. Whoa, really? So you did the math. I did I did some math, but I, I'm not necessarily like great 30, at math. If I walk <laughs> past 36 people every five minutes and I'm on the planet for an hour. <laughs> no, I just, no, yeah, it wasn't that quite that great of a deduction, but you I did. pulled it out of your a-hole. I did kind okay. of, I hoped that I could get in the ballpark. <laughs> Up to how many commercial pilots have admitted to falling asleep while flying a plane? We're looking for a percentage, Shannon. And I noticed you used the word admitted to. Yes. Because those who have not admitted to much larger percentage i imagine uh 10 percent, 50 whoa terrifying yeah thank god there's a co-pilot i'm pretty sure that's why there is a co-pilot i mean so mm. so they're admitting to like nodding off that's what it doesn't say right did they nod off did they go into full rem <laughs> Did they like do one of these and then catch themselves? I mean, are they allowed to sleep on the like uh, they are they allowed to take naps or whatever? Well, it says have admitted to falling asleep while flying a plane. Oh. I, I would imagine that that wasn't like during their nap time. Yeah. Otherwise, of course, they fell asleep. Yeah, because they're allowed to take naps. They're not yeah, supposed yeah. to not sleep for. <laughs> that's right. why there's two. <laughs> that's right. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Number three. Yes. What was the original film title for the film Alien? Star Beast. You got it. <laughs> that one was for you. Thank you. Number four in 1985. This one was for me. In 1985, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 was the highest grossing horror movie. Which horror movie came in second that year? So it wasn't Back to the Future. You've already been super clear yeah, about that. Yeah, that's science fiction. Jesus. What's one of my favorite cult classics oh wow that i watched quite a bit from the 80s and not the lost the lo- boys no oh i was gonna 80s? say not the lost boys yeah. oh <laughs> i just rolled that, I, I rolled that one out because uh, i know that's where you're gonna go <laughs> a horror movie yeah that you watch all the time from the 80s you said mm. Mm. i don't know i'm sorry fright night oh fright night made that much second i think it's yeah, it's I mean, a good it one. It wasn't just a cult favorite. I mean, it was no. obviously a popular favorite. It was. Yeah. I read some really interesting facts about it when I was looking up some info, too. <laughs> I bet. Well, he, Tom Holland had to literally do a play-by-play of each scene for Chris Sarandon to sign on. Chris Sarandon was like, I don't know if I want to do this. And there's 
There was a no, lot. No, they had that to do all it. the storyboards. Yep. Okay. Uh, number five. What does a spider do to its web when it's done with it, Shannon? Eats it. It eats it. Okay, that was a guess, but that made sense to me. <laughs> Super fun. Thank you so much for that. We are going to now, you don't know this, people, oh. but we are going to now end this episode, but we're going to record some extra stuff for Patreon because we do a mini cast every week. So we're going to do that and we will see you next week for whatever we come up with. We'll let you know. Thanks so much for listening. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.